This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do. Welcome to the Beyond Zero Emissions community show, and salut Babette. Now, listeners, the school strikers are catching the attention of our politicians this Friday, and you can strike too. They will gather outside the headquarters of the Liberal Party at Bill Shorten's headquarters and many others. I'll read the list at the end of the show, but put 3rd of May on your calendar now. And good luck to them catching the politicians, because I have been chasing politicians for tonight's show myself and between other commitments, catching planes, it's been quite hard to get them all on the air. But I'm going to introduce to you uh, Mark Butler, who's the ALP Shadow Climate Minister, Adam Bant, Green Spokesperson on Climate and the only Green in the Lower House of Parliament, and then Oliver Yates, who is challenging Josh Frydenberg in Kuyong. And I think he would bring all his expertise from Australia's first Green Bank into our Parliament. My feeling is that it is so urgent, it's such an emergency, that we need a government, something like a government of national unity, to face the climate crisis that we have created. Something to stop us winning with renewables on one hand and losing with more coal, oil and gas exports, plus land clearing on the other. The only proof, I think, is if emissions start going going down both here and globally and I've got a few sound bites from Christine Milne that I'll get Andy to just put in here and there to lift the ambition of our discussion because as you'll see the comp the politicians are sort of they're politicians they have to say partly what the public want to hear so they can't go too far out there whereas Christine Milne's out of politics now, she's an international Greens uh, speaker and is widely consulted, and so she can go out there and lift the ambition. So here we go, Andy. Mark Butler. The Honourable Mark Butler is the Shadow Minister for Climate, and he's deeply aware of the difficulty of getting Australia to lead on climate action. His book, The Climate Wars, showed just how awful it has been. I respect him because he turns up everywhere to consult business people and encourage groups like the Doctors for the Environment. So I appreciate his huge numbers of trips and um, trying to really keep open to all new ideas. So welcome, Mark. Thanks for having me again. Look, do you feel nervous about this being such a crucial election? Uh, It's climate change in the next decade that we're going to have to do enormous things and to succeed slowly will be to fail. What if you win the next election? Well, I mean, there's... There's no question I think this is an enormously important election uh, in terms of climate change. Obviously a range of other policy areas as well, but, but, uh, but really if, we, if the National Parliament doesn't start to put in place some serious climate policy, uh, we're going to be in a very difficult position come the second half of the 2020s. And that will be a terrible betrayal of, uh, of our children and our grandchildren. Uh, Barack Obama put it best, I think, as often he did, when he said... But ours is the first generation to feel the impacts of climate change and the last generation to do something uh, with the ability to do something meaningful about it. And frankly, the Australian Parliament has not been doing anything meaningful for the last five years. Well, look, I'm feeling so daunted by climate change that I'm agreeing now with Ian Dunlop, who's calling for a government of national unity, as we would have in wartime. Uh, You know, it's a climate emergency, and I would at least like to see 
a whole of government approach. And I interviewed Christine Milne at the um, Smart Energy Conference, and she said that portfolios like forests and mining resources sort of cancel out the efforts of the renewable sector and that we need some sort of uh, transition authority. Would you be interested in creating an independent authority to get experts involved in those tough decisions? Well, I agree uh, with Christine um, that that all areas of policy need to be brought into line with our climate change commitments and our climate change responsibilities. I mean, one of the things that I've talked about over the last couple of years is the degree to which um, over the last decade or so, resources policy and climate change policy at a national level have been going in different directions. Uh, we, need to, we need to start to bring all of those areas of policy that bear on climate change into alignment with our Paris commitments. And not when I say our Paris commitments, I don't mean Scott Morrison's inadequate um, pollution reduction targets because they're, they're just too soft. I mean our commitment to keep global warming well below two degrees and to pursue efforts around 1.5 degrees. To do that, we need transport policy, resources policy, forest policy, land sector policy, all aligned to that overarching commitment. Well, I agree, and I hope that you can put in place some sort, if you get into government, some sort of agency that really will be like we have in wartime, something that supersedes other decisions. So you told Fran Kelly that you want to place limits on the top polluting companies, 250 companies, you said, and she was concerned that they'd just pass on the costs to us. But you said that there was a no-do-nothing option, and I'd like you to just explain a bit more to our listeners how these limits would work on business. Well, when we were last in government, we'd put in place, as many of your listeners would recall, um, the carbon price mechanism that we'd agreed with the Greens Party and a number of rural independents like Tony Windsor and Rob Oakeshott. And that was, over time, going to morph into an emissions trading scheme that would cover any company that produces more than 25,000 tonnes of carbon pollution per annum. Mm. Uh, That is, for example, the threshold that, that triggers the... European Union emissions trading scheme and also China's national emissions trading scheme. So we think it's it's a well-rehearsed threshold and that would cover, we think, about 250 companies uh, in Australia. Uh, when the Tony Abbott government was um, brought to power, they did a couple of things. The first thing is that they lifted that threshold to 100,000 tonnes, so half of the big polluters in Australia were given a completely free pass. And they also then um, put in place very, very loose limits that haven't really constrained pollution at all, let alone started to reduce pollution from our big, uh, our big manufacturing LNG plants and such like, mm. way that we need to see reductions. Well, OK, so reducing emissions from that sector is one thing, but creating a whole new source of emissions is another. And that takes me to the Beetaloo Basin I met some Aboriginal people from that area of the Northern Territory at your ALP conference in Adelaide, and I must say I was impressed that the ALP was so well connected to so many community groups at that conference. I really had a, a smorgasbord in the fringe events of people to meet and people who were really doing progressive things, and that you were prepared to sponsor a fringe event for them. But 
Their story was that they were horrified that the moratorium had been lifted on fracking for gas in the Northern Territory. And we know that there is a massive resource there with many times the climate impact of Adani and all the other coal mines. So why has Bill Shorten said he would give $1.4 billion to pipe that gas from there to Darwin and the East Coast? I think the local and climate impacts would be appalling, wouldn't they? Well, um, there's, this really comes back to the earlier point I was making, Vivian, that, that the development of our resources needs to be brought into line with our climate commitments, and that hasn't been the case in the past. Uh, and what that will require in the future, I think, is um, much more careful thought about particularly fossil fuel developments. And I've made speeches, for example, about what that means for the development of a brand-new thermal coal basin in the Galilee that would be the only brand-new export-oriented thermal coal basin developed on the planet, uh, but also it will also have implications over time in Australia and other countries for gas and oil developments as well. Um, so, so obviously our governments are going to have to think about the climate impacts of um, gas developments as well as coal developments in the future. There are also, uh, there are also very serious concerns that people have had now for some years around um, if you like, non-climate-related impacts of gas developments, for example, impacts on, on water. Uh, landholders have, have objected, particularly in the eastern states, to the way in which some gas companies have sought to come onto their land to develop gas and such like. So this is a very contested area. As, as you it know. is, yeah. And when we were last in, in government, uh, along again with Tony Windsor and Rob Oakeshott, we we actually put some Commonwealth skin in the game in this area by establishing the water trigger. Now, that water trigger only applied to coal seam gas. Uh, we've, we've made a decision that we would, if elected, extend the water trigger and all the things that go with that water trigger also to shale gas uh, which would, and other tight gas formations which would bring the Northern Territory and other areas where the gas industry is interested in new developments within the water trigger where they're currently not covered by the water trigger. I mean, I think there, there is obviously a range of uh, issues, some of them related to um, the view of traditional owners, some of them related to water impacts and also, uh, uh, also others that, that are going to have to be worked through around the Beetaloo Basin, but also a range of other gas developments that, that people are interested in around the country. The announcement that Jason Clare and Bill Shorten made was really about... Um, a pipeline uh, proposal, which which really only becomes an issue in the event that all of those other hurdles are dealt with. Yes. I'm, I'm thinking that in the reality, reality is that it's political suicide to say no more fossil fuels, keep it all in the ground, which is what the pe Bill McKibben and people like that are saying and the scientists are saying keep it in the ground because we can't manage it, we can't manage these emissions. There was a doctor's report about cooking Darwin, you know, where Darwin would be getting... 30 or 40 days a year, over 40 degrees. You know, that's, uh, I haven't got the statistics. But is that because it's politically not manageable with the electorate we've got? I don't want you to, you know. Well, I think, I think there, are also, um, there are also some other dynamics at play in the gas, in the gas sector as well, um, compared, for example, to the coal sector. So if you look at the projections out of the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, 1.5 degree report around gas and coal, they're very different. Um, the IPCC uh, takes the view in that report that gas-fired generation over the next few decades may well have to increase to accelerate the phase-out of coal-fired power. 
um, the International Energy Agency's Paris scenario. So their, their projections about what is necessary to meet the two-degree commitment in the Paris Agreement would see uh, coal demand or thermal coal, particularly demand around the world, um, drop quite dramatically by, I think, around 60%. But um, demand for gas would actually increase even under the Paris um, scenario. So not their new policies or their four-degree scenario, but even under the two-degree scenario, there will be the need for additional gas over the next couple of decades as countries like China particularly substitute out of coal-fired gems. So yeah. the, the, the picture on gas is a little bit different to coal. Um, there is, I think, and I've written about this in my book and spoken about this, there is, I think, uh, a responsibility that the gas sector um, needs to pay greater attention to around their fugitive emissions. This is something that uh, is being closely examined in the United States as well. A lot of the emissions, frankly, are, managed, are, are able to be... Um, avoided if if the industry was just better at capping their wells and and um, pipelines were managed. Yeah. So so I think I think um, the whole question of gas is uh, is um, a little a little less clear over the next couple of decades around the world than, for example, the position on coal. And I think that's the view the IPCC and the IEA have taken about this. So, okay. I think we have to leave that one. I know I'm going to get loads of um, emails about this from the listeners because, you know, there is that position, well, just stop it all, even though it's commercially there. But that was part one of my interview with Mark Butler. And we are going to now speak to Adam Band. And after that, we'll come back to Mark Butler for the last comments he made. Okay, so this is the Beyond Zero Emissions uh, community show listeners and I know some of you will be very irate by that but you can see how difficult it is for politicians to manage this huge carbon bomb that we're living on called Australia. So now we're going to speak to Adam Bant. Are you there, Adam? Uh, ah, I think he might not be there. Um we, just we might throw to that, Christine Milne. Yes, we'll, okay, we're just going to hear a little bit from Christine Milne, who I met at the Smart Energy Conference before we find Adam. And the main thing I said to them was, look, you need a high-level cabinet committee, which is a whole-of-government approach. Otherwise, you're going to have one portfolio, as in forests and natural resources like gas, undermining your renewable effort. So here we are. As, have we got Adam Bant on the line? No, he's not there. <sighs> Could we? I think we have to phone him up again. I think that's the problem. All right, listeners. Just while we do that, this is the the kind of thing. I'll just tell you how I how come I met Christine Milne. It was at a smart energy conference, and so I took the opportunity to ask her what she's up to. And being part of the international green, she's travelling widely. And she went to Malaysia, and they consulted her about how did we in Australia have that clean energy package. And um, <clears throat> Andy, can you can you find them again? And uh, and uh, so how do we get the clean energy package? And so she told them all about the Green Bank. And I've got these a couple of little grabs that I'll put in to in the interviews if once we get going with the next one. Um, uh, the Green Bank and also the way of managing all the portfolios in a government. And she felt that you needed some overarching authority to. Uh, <clears throat> 
to prevent the positive advances made by, say, renewable energy and energy efficiencies and uh, carbon farming and all of that being counteracted by land clearing or mining or, as we heard with Mark Butler, the huge thing of this wealth of gas and oil that we've got that just is being pushed and pushed and pushed to be exploited and should governments subsidise it or not. Um, so I think we'll um, we'll hear, when we hear from Adam Bapp, we'll hear that little clip from Christine Milne and then right at the end of the program, there's another person who was at the conference. He is uh, the head of the Smart Energy Council, um, John uh, John Grimes, and he's very scathing about Australia, much politer than me, and much less polite than me. Like not that he's a polite person, but I'm I'm pussyfooting around because these people, I I understand the sensitivity of their jobs, and they don't want to put their foot in it for the electorate, but we'll speak to John Grimes. He's much more trenchant than me, let's say. Okay, Adam Bound, are you there? I am, hi. Oh, at last, we found you. Thank you very much for doing this at very short, you know, I think your time is very short. So uh, I'll just introduce you. Adam is the Greens climate change spokesperson and the member for Melbourne. The Greens have launched a climate and energy action plan, which is very different from the major parties. So welcome, Adam. Many Thanks pe- for having me. I'm very pleased you're there. Many people, uh, please speak up really loudly to into the microphone. Many people are calling for a government of national unity. You might hear people like Ian Dunlop saying that because the climate emergency is making us all feel quite nervous and we want a national authority to manage the transition and we want to know that scientific advice is being getting through to the top and so on. How would this balance out the, you know, if you had a transition authority, how would this balance out the interests of mining and forestry and traditional jobs with the new imperative we've now got to stop exporting fossil fuels? How would that work? Yeah, good good question. A lot of big issues there. And I guess the overall starting point is to say what we need is a national plan to deal with the climate emergency. And so recognising that we're facing an emergency, recognising that um, some people are suggesting we've got between five and ten years to avoid dangerous tipping points and understanding that for a country like Australia that is still um, heavily reliant on coal, although less so every day, but heavily reliant on coal to generate our energy domestically and still exports a lot of coal, um, we need a significant plan that involves large-scale, I think, national mobilisation, effectively a Green New Deal um, to uh, to reorient the country. And that has to be led by... So, so the first part of that is actually accepting that we're in an emergency situation. And at the moment, not many others in the political sphere are accepting that, but I think it's becoming ever more difficult to ignore the science. Then what we need once we've accepted that is to say, right, well, how are we going to make that happen? And I think we need a national authority. And in fact, the Greens have introduced legislation as part of our Renew Australia package to get to 100% renewables by 2030. We've introduced legislation to create that kind of national authority that would sit there and say, right, we are in charge of not only driving the domestic energy transition so that we get to 100% renewables here in Australia, but we've also got to now have the managed closure of our coal exports, um, so by 2030, and doing it in a way that means that we build up new jobs and new industries in those regions that are affected along the way. 
And if we have a plan to do it within a period of time, we're saying 10 years, if we have a plan to do that, then that gives us enough time to start um, building up those industries in those areas that are going to be affected. And on our analysis, um, getting Australia to 100% renewable energy is going to create 180,000 jobs a year between now and 2030. Now, they're going to be jobs that a lot of those people in those mining areas um, are going to be able to to transition straight over into because they're going to be jobs building new renewables. There's going to be jobs building more interconnections. There's going to be jobs helping us export hydrogen. Um, So all of the, uh, let alone giving us the best chance of saving the 70,000 jobs that are relying on a healthy Great Barrier Reef. So we can do it um, with a bit of political leadership. The numbers are all there. Our job this election is to say, right, we've got to make that transition now. Yeah, well, I, I love the fact that you've got a plan and you've put the thinking into it. And I know it can be done because we've interviewed the Germans who re-educated and compensated all their coal workers with no one left behind. Um, you didn't mention... And, and can I say yeah, on that yeah. also, the equivalent of the German Labor and Liberal Party have just come up with a plan about how they are going to close down the last of their coal-fired power stations by about 2028. Um, I think and some might say that's a bit too late and um, I may have parts of the date wrong, but the principle is right that the, the equivalent of the Labor and Liberal parties have just sat down and worked out a plan. Mm. And um, it should be faster and... Uh, it, it might not provide the kind of support that's needed, but the fact that they've even done it shows how far behind we are in Australia. I know, and I wish more politicians would talk like this about a plan because that's what listeners, oh, not listeners, I mean, you know, voters want to hear. They want to say, I can go back to doing my normal work and my family and everything. Either politicians have got a plan and they're working on it and we'll be having all these jobs in this and we'll be, it will be, why, I want to know why do not the major parties, why they don't subsidise the clean jobs. We just had Mark Butler talking about a billion dollars for piping out fracked gas from Northern Territory. And, this, and look, can I say this outrages me because um, the, the, I mean, the Liberal Party, the Conservatives that we've got at the moment deserve to be turfed out. Like They don't even believe climate change exists, many of them, and Scott Morrison chucks around lumps of coal and they tore down the clean energy package that we got in place um, back in the 2010 parliament. And so they need to be turfed out, no questions asked. But um, it seems that when it comes to Labor and Liberal, we've got a choice between um, the Conservatives who are climate deniers, but Labor are climate delayers. And we see that with them being prepared to take $1.5 billion from... Uh, uh, that should be going to schools and hospitals and using it to subsidise to a new gas industries in when we know how that methane is so much more potent as a greenhouse gas than carbon dioxide um use uh, opening up new gas fields in the area where adani is and in the northern territory now and and then um bill shorten says oh well it's Part of gas is a transition fuel, but then he says in the next breath, "There's 400 years of reserves." Yes, in I there. read that. Like, we 400 cannot, years. You cannot talk about a sensible transition plan no. and at the same time say we're going to have 400 years worth of worth of new gas. No. So, one of the immediate things that we've got to do, and we will push for this, 
in Parliament is immediately halt the development of new oil, gas and coal reserves. Okay. Um, we cannot, we cannot, in all good conscience, knowing what we know now, um, begin further exploration. In fact, so we need to immediately stop that and then work out how we're going to leave existing fossil fuels in the ground. Mm. Well, listen, just to finish, um, Adam, the one of the things I think you would have you would have enjoyed hearing was a talk at up at Gloucester where they had two wins against AGL Gas and then against the Rocky Hill coal mine. And the Land and Environment Court there, I think they made a really groundbreaking decision, which they said it's the wrong time in history to be opening a new coal mine. And the judge said there was no evidence that if Australia, which is the biggest exporter, phased out the trade, that others would take up the slack. In other words, we could be leaders in the phase-out, just as we were in Antarctica when we... Got the sort of we stopping. absolutely could, and that um, it was a victory for community power, and it was a great uh, uh, decision. And uh, the, I think it's going to be you're going to see more and more of those types of decisions. And you've now got everyone from the Reserve Bank of Australia to the uh, the people who regulate the finance sector, APRA uh, and ASIC, who regulate who regulate all of the companies, saying, "Hey, look, hang on, you might actually be if you're a director of a company and you don't start planning." For to keep the um, uh, the the world below two degrees and ideally at one and a half, as has been signed up in the Paris Agreement. If you're not thinking about that and what that means for your company, you may be in breach of the law. You may be in breach of your current um, director's duties under corporations law. And I think we're going to see more and more recognition from our regulators and from our courts that. Uh, that even uh, that to be consistent with Australian law and international law and international agreements like the Paris Agreement, uh, it's going to mean um, keeping coal in the ground and keeping gas in the ground. And those companies, and this is one of the crazy things about Labor's plan, you're talking about building stranded assets because um, you're talking about taking $1.5 billion of public money, using it to build new pipelines that, according to the Paris Agreement, will have no use within a few years' time. And that is not a way to spend public money. It's not a way to spend private money. And increasingly, the tide is turning. Oh, great. All right. Well, look, I have a lot more questions to ask you, but I know you've got to go. So thank you very much for feeding us in tonight. Bye-bye and good luck with your campaign. Thank you. Bye-bye. Okay, so that was Adam Bant rushing off to another meeting. And as you see, listeners, I've had to catch people here and there. Now we're going to hear the rest of Mark Butler's talk. Poor Mark Butler was cut off. I interviewed him before the whole show started. And this is the second part of his talk, which, you know, as I said, he's very comprehensive and um, he might be in power quite soon and he has to uh, be allowed to finish. So could we hear the last part of Mark Butler, please, Andy? I'd like to move back to coal, though. I'm not going to ask you about it, Dani, but I've interviewed lots of young people involved in the movement called FLAC, you know, where they... I interviewed one guy. He was up on a tripod in Newcastle trying to stop the trains taking the coal down to export, and I spoke later outside the Newcastle court a few months later to his mother, and she said it was tragic. He doesn't see any future. He doesn't want to have children He said, why doesn't government take the subsidies away from fossil fuels, you know, as your billion for the oil or gas, you know, and put them into clean industries? She said, it's a political decision what future you subsidise. And I wonder, what do you say to these people, young voters and their parents and people who just don't want any fossil fuels? I mean, you want them to vote for you. What, What have you got to offer there? Well, what we, what we try to do is to map out a plan that 
has real ambition in it. Um, you know, it, it's not going to satisfy everyone in the sense it's not going to see uh, an end to the use of fossil fuels um, this year or, or even even over the next couple of years. Uh, what we've tried to do, uh, and I've tried to do particularly, having responsibility for this area in the Labor Party, is to, to work closely with stakeholders and work out what is an ambitious position that is consistent with um, with those those key commitments that are contained in the Paris Agreement. So uh, an ambitious build of renewable energy over the course of the 2020s, shifting our transport fleet as much as possible to zero emissions um, or low emissions that will ultimately become zero emissions technology, something where Australia is drastically lagging the rest of the world. But look, I think the, the case you talk about there, I, I see all the time. I'm really concerned at the degree to which young people and their parents and grandparents, but young people uh, are really starting to lose hope in Australia's ability to manage this monumental challenge of climate change, which goes back to our first point, which is why this election is just so important. Yeah. Well, look, as I said, I won't ask you about Adani because I'm trusting that if you're the new climate minister, it will not go ahead. This might be magical thinking, but I'm just trusting that. What I do want to know about is adaptation to climate change and what boost you will give to emergency services. Fran Kelly had a, a man called Greg Mullins. He was the former fire commissioner on, and it was the most moving interview because he talked about this cascading series of events, drought, fire, then flood, and they can't keep up with it. From Cairns down to Hobart, we've just had months of you know, these emergencies, they can't, they don't have enough helicopters to go there. And they say, we've just been getting cutbacks and cutbacks. And we want a commitment from the government to take reasonable and responsible climate adaptation. They're exhausted. Yeah, I heard that interview. It was very powerful. I've yeah. also um, uh, being at a rally in Melbourne a few years ago where a firefighter gave a speech about his experience. And he had this memorable phrase which said that uh, there are no climate sceptics at the end of a fire <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're living this, they're seeing this, um, the lengthening of the fire season, the increased intensity of fires. And there are just things like what you mentioned. I mean, we used to swap um, the, the helicopter, the, the firefighting helicopter Elvis, between the Northern Hemisphere and the Southern Hemisphere when fire seasons were, were confined to six months in each hemisphere. Even that is becoming impractical now that we find our fire season extending well into winter and starting much earlier as well. What I think we want, to, we, do, we want to do in this area, and I've announced as a policy, is I think we need um, to conduct a comprehensive climate change assessment for Australia. Uh, I've been very struck by the power of the assessment that's done on a three-yearly basis in the United States. It's something much more focused than, obviously, the IPCC does at a global level. It's something more detailed than the two-yearly state of the climate reports we get from the Bureau and the CSIRO. And it will allow, I think, a really deep national debate about how we deal with the impacts of climate change that we're already feeling and that are already cooked into the system over coming years. And that will cover emergency services. It will cover uh, the, the agriculture sector, uh, the Alpine region, our coastal region and things like that. So I'm very committed to really replicating some of the best climate change assessment work you see around the world here in Australia so that in an informed, evidence-based way we can start to deal with some of those questions that, that that veteran of the firefighting service talked about on Frank Kelly's program. Mm. 
Well, the last question is, uh, coming back to the conference, I met the lean people there, the Labour for the Environment, I think, and uh, they said that we have land clearing rates in Australia to rival Brazil and Indonesia, and I know that, and retaining forests is key to climate action, and I don't think that means selling it all off as renewable biomass. That's a very contentious issue, apparently. But what will you do about the tree cover in this arid land? You, let's say you're in Parliament for the next four or five years. What would you do? <clears throat> well, look, over, over a very short period of time, the 200 years since Europeans arrived in Australia, we've cleared two-thirds of this continent. Uh, and at some point, you've just got to say enough. And what I, will, uh, what I am keen to see a Commonwealth Government do is to put in place protections that safeguard Australia's remaining or remnant vegetation, the vegetation that hasn't been cleared, and its high-value regrowth that might have been cleared in the past but has been allowed to regrow for a period of time. And these were reforms I was very proud of that Peter Beattie and Anna Bly put in place in Queensland uh, and Bob Carr put in place in New South Wales that, that did enormous things, um, to enormous, made an enormous contribution to reducing our carbon pollution levels through the 2000s but also had wonderful uh, impacts on biodiversity and preventing runoff, for example, under the Great Barrier Reef. So I'm concerned that state conservative governments have been winding back those protections and that those windbacks actually bear on the national obligations that we've signed up to through the Kyoto uh, Protocol on Climate and now the Paris Agreement on Climate. So we will put in place arrangements through the Commonwealth Government using Commonwealth powers to protect that remnant vegetation and high-value regrowth across the country. Now, that will have a good climate impact in and of itself. It will have a good biodiversity impact, but it will also set a good baseline on which we can build a vibrant carbon farming market because you can't have a, a vibrant carbon farming market working in one part of the country while in the other, another part of the country we're, we're still going about broad-scale land. Yeah. It simply won't be regarded as credible. I think that's what the public want to hear. They want to hear that you're not going to be taking with one hand and giving with the other. You know, that these promises that are made at election times are things that are sort of permanent, you know, especially things like growing trees. It's going to have to be there for a few generations. That's right. That's right. Okay. Well, thank you very much, Mark. Um, I really appreciate your talking to us and um, good luck with your campaign. Thank you. Good to talk to you again. Thank you very much. That was the Honourable Mark Butler speaking to us from Adelaide. Welcome back, listeners, to the Beyond Zero Emissions show. I hope you've now followed the argument. We've had the ALP, Mark Butler, talking on a wide range of climate-related policies, then Adam Bant representing the Greens, and now we're going to Oliver Yates. He is the independent candidate for Kuyong. And he's the inaugural head of the Clean Energy Finance Corporation. And we've interviewed him in the past about all these big projects that they finance to get, you know, get the transition going. So thank you, Oliver, for coming on our show. How's your campaign going? Oh, it's all very busy with the pre-poll underway. It's um, been a bit of a zoo down in the first polling station this morning. People are saying it's probably about, you know, four or 500 people gone through the polling station, oh. not more. Oh, today. Okay, can you speak a bit louder, please, um, Oliver? Sorry, Sorry yeah, no, it's been a busy day at the, uh, the pre-polls. The yeah. pre-polls are open, so people are voting. Is oh, that better? good. Well, as the first head of the, clim- uh, the CEFC, Clean Energy Finance, I think you would be an asset to the parliament. And, I mean, I've interviewed you before, and you know quite a lot, and you know about the financial levers, so you'd be a, 
ideal person in there, I think. But would you tell listeners how the green bank that, you know, and around the world there are green banks, how they can accelerate the transition we need this decade? Well, yes, look, look, generally, I mean, green banks are really can be considered of as specialist lenders. Um, they have really a, a very strong specialist understanding of the technology, energy and carbon transition that's underway. And typically, they're, um, they're very useful to have because they're um, often more comfortable with the risks and will take risks that other lenders won't contemplate. Now, typically around the world, they're often funded by governments and they're linked into the key policy decisions of the government, which means that they have specialist knowledge of the policies of the government and they can help the government not only uh, provide funding for the implementation of those policies but actually help the government with effective policy creation. So green banks are really, really important because they can uh, draw in other lenders and provide confidence um, to other lenders with a view that obviously if more lenders come to the market to lend to green projects, then that'll reduce the cost of capital and make sure that capital is available for those projects. So those projects and businesses and green businesses will be able to invest more, much faster. And, and as you know, Vivian, to be able to do this, the energy transition requires investments of trillions of dollars across the world. So mm. having available capital is absolutely critical. Mm. And it's tricky and it's a new type of expertise, I think, that has to be developed by everybody. Well, some of it's new. I mean, a lot of it's standard project financing, but some yeah. of the some of the risks involved are slightly different. People, uh, the slightly different technology, particularly in the uh, newer areas, for example, that you know the areas that are coming up now where green bank assistance would probably be more appropriate is in the area of um, uh, renewables to to hydrogen and renewables yeah. to ammonia. Yeah. As we go into the chemical side, renewables to chemicals part of the, mm. the transition. Well, um, uh, Christine Milne spoke to me at the Smart Energy Conference where you both gave a rousing talk to the industry. I think everyone wants to put a dose of salts under the industry to make them lobby as hard as the fossil fuel people do. And she told me later that she had been consulted by the Malaysian government and she felt that Australians could offer expertise really to developing countries who want to make the transition. They were, they were picking her brains really to find out how we had got that clean energy package in our government, and she said that the Green Bank was a big part of it. So, Andy, could you just, Andy, will just pay a little bit of one minute of what she said, and I'd like you to comment. Really exciting. Malaysia, since the change of government last year, has has uh, said it wants to go from what is currently 2% renewable energy to 20% renewable energy by 2030. Now that is huge. Um, and so now they're working out how to do it. And so I had meetings with several of the federal ministers there to talk about one of the key things they need is a green bank, effectively the Clean Energy Finance Corporation. And I explained to them that the huge contribution it had made was not just in the investment, but in holding the hand of the private sector investors to give them the confidence that they weren't taking all the risk on their own. And whereas we now know in Australia and uh, Germany and other economies that renewable energy is not a risk, you've still got in Asia a financial sector that's not so confident. That's why a green bank is essential. But it was just fascinating to be able to talk to so many people because 
Malaysia could actually reposition itself if it stopped the logging of forests and conversion to palm oil and it said to the rest of the world, we need your help to help us restore our forests and at the same time we need help with capacity building to get to 20% renewables. If that change of position occurred in Malaysia, I'm pretty confident the rest of the world would see it as a great positive and help. So, Oliver, what is your response? Well, look, she's, she's right in relation to uh, Australia's expertise here. Um, and the Green Bank, or the CEFC, is now probably the largest and perhaps the most experienced public-owned Green Bank around the world now. Um, I'm aware um, of that there have been many discussions now already held uh, between Malaysia um, and others about scaling up um, their version of a Green Bank. They have a small institution called Green Tech Malaysia. I've met them quite a few times um, because there is a Green Bank consortium which helps to try and establish Green Banks around the world. Look, the team in Malaysia that they've already got there is already highly experienced themselves um, and they have very clear um, uh, views on the market and they should be able to make um, really good progress once they obtain political clearance to enable them to uh, grow. Um, But it's quite an interesting scenario because obviously... Having local experience, which is what Green Tech uh, Malaysia has, combined with you know some international experience, which the CEFC may have, could um, could accelerate that uh, the establishment of a bigger, larger opportunity in Malaysia. But they are well developed, I and mean, it's a well developed financial market there, and they're clearly onto it. They just um, they haven't just pushed the push the button yet on a much larger version equivalent to the CEFC in Malaysia yet. Yeah. Well, coming back home, you've been very scathing about the Liberal Party, <clears throat> saying that they're in the dark ages and worse, ignoring science. And indeed, in the Sydney Morning Herald, I read an article saying that the IPA has been advising the Liberal Party to distrust even the Bureau of Meteorology. I just threw my hands in the air at that. Look, how will you appeal to people who usually vote Liberal? Well, I think the question is, is that I don't really need to appeal to them. I just need to be visible to them. Um, they are looking for someone to represent most of them. The Liberal Party today is nothing like the Liberal Party that, that I grew up with or my father represented at the time. At the moment, it's a, a right-wing group that really doesn't represent many Liberal voters that I speak to. So, you know, I can't understand how the Liberal Party would deny the risks and the impacts of climate change and operate um, in such a, you know, effectively reckless and chaotic fashion. Um, For most Liberals I talk to, they're lost. They don't have a a party who represents them or whom they feel happy being represented by because the Liberal Party is not really in any form um, what it used to be. So... Uh, I'm here basically standing as what I classify as a left-leaning liberal, for want of a better word, Um, and the response is great. They know um, that this has to be done, that what I'm doing here is to effectively draw attention to the the, the miserable position that the Liberal Party claims to be at the moment. They know we have to kick them out. They know the Liberal Party won't reform itself. Um, You know, this is the founding seat of the Liberal Party and a loss in the founding seat of the Liberal Party might actually uh, waken, waken this, uh, the party up and, and, and make people realise that effectively if it doesn't reform, uh, it won't be around for, for much longer. Well, would you say, looking at the bigger picture historically, that we are in a very vital decade and that this is a climate election and if, if we don't, in fact, get 
progressive policies, you know, sensible, modern, forward-looking, practical policies in to stop climate change or mitigate it, then we really would need to have a, a government of national unity or something above the party kind of uh, mess that we've been seeing in the last decade. Well, we're we're in a in a continued position where we're not taking enough action. Seri- you know, we're not taking enough action fast enough, as we all know. Um, it's sad that uh, a government who has any government that has one of their core responsibilities is to protect us and our children um, should be so negligent in relation to this matter. Um, it is an, a moral question here, and the morals are very simple: is you know do unto others as you'd have done to yourself here, Um, we shouldn't be leaving these liabilities. We wouldn't want these liabilities to be foisted on us um, and we're leaving these to our children. So um, something has to be uh, something has to be done and uh, as for some form of a unity ticket well, you know, or some form of national government, I'm I'm not sure exactly how that would be achieved Uh, um, at the moment. um, The Liberal Party uh, just seems to say no to everything, and I guess that's what the Labor Party is currently uh, finding itself under. They've put forward suggestions of policies because there are policies totally lacking from the Liberal Party, and as a result of putting forward suggestions on how we may um, uh, start to address a whole variety of social, economic and environmental issues, uh, they're under attack for it. So it appears the idea here is that victory comes by complaining and saying no to everything. Um, that's the liberal philosophy. Um, that is not the philosophy that anyone should be thinking is appropriate for an advanced economy as ours and an economy which uh, needs to consider continue to transition if it's to be successful for ourselves and our children. Yes, we above all have got the means. You know, we're an educated population and we've got the money and we've got you know, we haven't been war-torn or anything. I can't bear it. Look, the Beyond Zero Emissions reports, you know, you've seen them. They show how each sector can reduce yep. emissions and then draw down. And you said at the conference that electricity and buildings were the easy sectors um, to transition, but that transport emissions, like all the air-freighted food and goods that we consume, are critically hard. What policies are needed in that transport sector? Well, I think the answer is is the transport sector is the the hardest. And um, you need um, to be able to turn over the assets themselves, which are the the, the vehicles. Um, So uh, you need pathways for all of this. And and what you've seen from other people, not only yourself, but also good work from Climate Works Australia, is the development of programs, not just policies. So I think the problem is when you're talking about a transition in the transport sector, it isn't just a single policy. You actually need a program that covers not only the infrastructure that you need for different types of vehicles, but encourages their uptake and implementation and rapid change. Otherwise, people will continue on driving, you know, continuing with their, their existing uh, assets and not change to new assets. So like everything and like um, most um, good programs, you need a, a program rather than a policy. And that was what we had with the Climate Change Authority when that was in place. It put together a full program and a decarbonisation pathway. But, um, you know, as you know, it suggested a decarbonisation task that Australia, if it was to be responsible, would have to undertake, which is somewhere between 45 and 65% between 2030. And it was roundly then immediately gutted by this Liberal government um, and gutted, uh, stripped of its funding and the board board changed because they didn't like the truth that was being told to them that uh, for Australia to be responsible and for Australia to act 
fairly in relation to the overall carbon emissions mm. uh, allowed across the globe, that they were the type of emissions reductions that would be required. They didn't want to do anything and they haven't done anything. Golly. Look, I think most people deplore, and on a sort of another angle, uh, most people deplore this kind of American-style politics we're seeing where money buys votes and there's obviously a lot of money changing hands. Would you like to see a government of national unity or um, something outside the government, independent authority, who could just cut through all that? Or how can we refocus on the climate emergency with all this corruption? Well, as you've seen, you'd need to have a government in place that would has to put in place an authority with appropriate powers and funding and also with leadership within the authority that w- will withstand changes in government. And um, we lack that in Australia. Our own environmental protection authorities right across Australia are negligent and failing their statutory duty to do what their own nameplate says, which is to be the Environment Protection Authority. We saw what happened in WA. They were rolled over. We see what happens in all these states. They claim they don't have to care about carbon emissions, even though those carbon emissions are causing acidification of the oceans and damaging and destruction of, you know, shellfish and the marine environments within the areas that they are statutorily responsible to preserve. So, uh, you know, you can have as many authorities as you like, um, but if the authorities are run and operated by people who neglect the fundamental statutory responsibility that they have mm. to honour the name of their own authority, then we're not going to uh, then we're not going to get very far. Um, it is a really another serious indictment on Australia that we have statutory authorities where very few of them will stand up to the brunt and the wind of, of, a, of a government and uh, and hold firm uh, under any form of under any form of um, government threat. Well, I think you're that sort of person. You do stand up. I think you were enraged at the <clears throat> lumps of coal passed around um, by the present government and um, as if the coal and gas and oil industries can go on forever. I think you've made public statements about that. And meanwhile, the Labor Party's announced a $1.5 billion subsidy to open up the Northern Territory gas. And I think let's give the listeners something positive to finish on. Adam Band just said they will be stranded assets. It'd be very bad to put that amount of um, taxpayers' money into a project that will soon be a stranded asset. We had the Rocky Hill decision in uh, Gloucester about the you know Gloucester area where they, the judge said this is the wrong time for a new coal mine. In fact, there's not going to be another time when a coal mine can be should be opened up. So. I want to know what your wisdom is. You know, do you think it'll be financial pressures, stranded assets, just people turning away as they've turned towards renewable energy and so on? Is that what's going to um, make the transition, or can governments themselves make a decision to stop, you know, subsidising the kind of future that's um, death all around, or the kind of future where there'll be clean energy jobs and so on? Well, I think you look in relation to the ALP's announcement to subsidise fracking in the Northern Territory, um, it's, it's a disgrace. Um, the government should not be subsidising fossil fuel use, period. Um, and secondly, uh, what they must do is they should be introducing a domestic gas reservation arrangement that returns Australian gas to Australian industry and tells the large exporters who overbuilt their export capacity that if they want extra gas, they don't steal it from Australian industry. They do what they needed to do, which is they pay the $1.4 billion if they want to get hold of that gas. 
The government is effectively bailing out Curtis Island here and the gas exporters for their own commercial mistake. They made a mistake by overbuilding, massively overbuilding export capacity, and there wasn't the gas when they fracked around in, in Queensland to enable them to supply that facility. They took a bet, and it's very clear what they did. They took a bet that they could build the world's biggest export facilities in Curtis Island and they could suck all the gas out of the domestic market and the domestic manufacturers would scream so loud, blood would pour out of the government's ears and the government would then allow them to go and frack the whole of Australia. Well, that was a commercial decision they made. That was a mistake. The government needs to say, you've lost out, guys. You overbuilt without securing supply. Stupid you. You're not going to hold us to ransom anymore and destroy Australian industry by, by, by stealing effectively our domestic gas, which you didn't obtain yourself, and driving our domestic industry out of this country. There should be a gas reservation system in place, and if they want to use those assets, they can work out what they want to do to work out how they get gas from Northern Territory, but the ALP government shouldn't be spending $1.4 billion to subsidise more fossil fuel use. It's just not appropriate. Great. Thank you very much. I like the trenchant way you speak. And um, I think you, you know quite a lot. So thank you very much. I wish you well with your campaign. No I think um, you're, um, the person you're challenging, Josh Frydenberg, is going to have the, all the students converging at his place on Friday. Um, I'm just going to announce that to the listeners. But good luck and thank you for speaking to us. No problem. Thank you. Thank, thank you, everybody. You. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That was Oliver Yates, the uh, first head of the Clean Energy Finance Corporation. He's challenging Frydenberg in the the electorate of Kuyong. Now, before we go on to the outro, um, Andy, I'd just like you to play John Grimes, um, please. I think that's file two. He was at the Clean Energy, no, the Smart Energy Conference. He's the head of the Smart Energy Council. He was much more trenchant again. He called Australia a pariah. Just let's, let's listen to him just to raise your blood pressure. There is a, an alliance of countries, the powering past coal alliance, that is, that is committed to no coal in the OECD by 2030 and no coal in the rest of the world by 2050. 80 countries have signed on to that, to that including the United Kingdom, who will be coal-free by 2025. All that fantastic sunshine they have in the UK, you see. That's why they outdo <laughs> us in the amount of solar PV they install. Canada, France, Mexico, New Zealand. And what's Australia's reaction? Well, at the last COP meeting in December last year, we were the only nation to join with the United States at a pro-coal event at COP24. We, folks, Australia is a global pariah when it comes to climate change action. You know, when they talk about, you know, in geopolitical terms, the axis of evil, they talk about North Korea, Libya, and those places. We are the top of the list when it comes to climate inaction. I actually want a government that is going to restore our international standing, that's going to use our our power as a middle power to cajole and to influence and to argue and to bring up commitments from other other countries. We can play that, that leadership role. We have in the past and we must again. Oh, that was John Grimes um, speaking at the Smart Energy Conference. All right, listeners. Now, we're just going to have a little um, uh, community announcement and then I'll tell you all the events that are on that you might like to participate to make your voice heard about climate action. Hey, Melbourne's newest film festival is about to hit the screens. Now, put this in your diary. The 26th 
to the 29th of April. The inaugural Biraranga Film Festival will showcase Indigenous films from across the globe. An incredible selection of feature films, shorts packages, conversations and even virtual reality. Now head to www.biraranga.world. That's B-I-R-R-A-R-A-N-G-G-A.world and book your tickets. See you at ACME for the most exciting and global Indigenous Film Festival right here in Melbourne. A 3CR supporter. Okay, you've been listening to the Beyond Zero Emissions Community Show. Beyond Zero Emissions is an educational think tank and we put out all sorts of policies to show that the transition can be done. We've heard the politicians tonight and that shows you the difficulty of making it happen, but technically and with the will of the people... This transition has got to happen. One of the groups that I'd like to advertise is the Students' Strike for Climate. The biggest event this week, I think, is going to be on Friday when they will be out in force. So start making your banners and plan to be there. Take photos, send them to your MP and advertise this this event to anyone you know. Friday the 3rd of May is the National Day of Action before the climate election. The school strikers will be there, but they want everyone to be there. Neither of the major parties have a plan to stop dangerous climate change. As you've heard tonight, the big parties really can't bring themselves to do it quick enough. So we are stepping things up, say the students. Three demands. Stop Adani, no new fossil fuels and 100% renewable energy by 2030. So those, they make it very clear, they make those demands. Of course, if we achieve those, they'll have more demands. But those makes it very simple, very visible what we're aiming for. No new fossil fuels, 100% renewables by 2030 in Stopadani. So um, in Melbourne, if you, if you want to go to the Liberal headquarters, you go on Friday at 12.30 to 104 Exhibition Street. So if you're in the city, go to 104 Exhibition Street. Or if you want to go down to Bill Shorten's headquarters, it's it's at Mooney Ponds, 12 Hall Street, and people will be there at 11am. I think it should be very colourful. All these things run by the students are very exciting and colourful and very original. Um, for Josh Frydenberg's office, he uh, they want people to go there at 5 o'clock. His office is 695 Burke Street, Camberwell. There are loads of other places, including Geelong and Warrigal, and you just need to go to the School Strike for Climate website and RSVP. But please let us know if you've got anything else um, for, for us to advertise next week, but please go to that this week on Friday. There will also be a Beyond Zero Emissions discussion group next Monday, the 6th of May, at 6.30. It's at Melbourne University at the Fritz Lowe Theatre, in the, in the McCoy building. You can look also at the Beyond Zero Emissions website to find that uh, f- the details of that event that I've just said. So next Friday, School Strike for Climate. So thank you for listening, everybody, and thank you, Andy. Tonight the team has been Andy and me, Vivian Langford, and we've had guests Mark Butler, Adam Bant and Oliver Yates. Thank you. Good night. <laughs>